Broadcasting across the galaxy, you're listening to Radio Dakar, a Star Wars podcast dedicated to the animated series Star Wars Resistance. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Radio Dakar. I am your host, Doug Brooks. And I'm really excited. This is the first review episode for Star Wars Resistance. This is what the show is all about. This is what I've been building up to for the past couple of months. Star Wars Resistance is on the air. Episodes have shown up on Disney Channel, on the Disney Now app. I've seen the first three episodes, but this is just a review of The Recruit, which was the hour-long premiere, uh, episodes one and two, perhaps you could say. But Disney now just counted it as episode one, so that's how I'm going to re- refer to it. So that's what this is all about. I'm going to review the episode, uh, tell you what I thought about it, and I get to do it about 20 more times. Uh, that was confirmed. It's a 22-episode first season. So this is going to go on for a while. I'm thrilled. Let's get into it. Before I do that, though, I have to mention Resistance is just the tip of the iceberg because there are other TV projects coming on the Disney streaming service next year. We've known about it for a couple of months, but there will be another season of Clone Wars that will wrap up some of the arcs that Dave Filoni and the crew wanted to do. From the preview, we can see that Siege of Mandalore is one of those. And if you haven't read it, the Ahsoka book by E.K. Johnston and the audiobook read by Ahsoka herself, Ashley Eckstein, is a great read. Uh, It's a young reader novel. It has elements of the Siege of Mandalore in there. And that got me excited when I found out about the new season. As I mentioned in the first episode, I wasn't able to watch Clone Wars when it was first on due to school and work. I had to binge it later. But it's a great series. I loved it. Got me ready for Rebels when it came out. But there's so many people who got started with Star Wars because of Clone Wars and grew up on it. It's a very special thing and it was great seeing all their emotions when this was announced. So that season is coming on the streaming service. And they confirmed the first live-action Star Wars series on TV will be The Mandalorian. It takes place a couple of years after Return of the Jedi, after the Empire has fallen, but before the First Order. And it is about a lone gunslinger, basically. It's Western in space, as it should be. Jon Favreau is producing this. They're in production right now, uh, so they released the first picture of this Mandalorian and the typical armor and one thing that has me excited is it's an amazing array of diverse directors Dave Filoni again is getting his first crack at live action with the pilot but Deborah Chow, Rick Famuyama, Bryce Dallas Howard and my personal favorite Taika Waititi the director of Thor Ragnarok which is a movie I love People who know me know I talk about the movie all the time. So I'm thrilled to see him directing. I'm thrilled to see 
women, people of color, just an amazing array of good directors. We also get our first father and daughter t team up with Ron Howard having done Solo. Bryce Dallas Howard is doing this series. So they each get their crack at an episode. We get to see their own interpretation of Star Wars. Uh, it's very exciting. Can't wait to see those next year. But right now we've got Resistance. Uh, and before I get into the episode, since I did my last episode, they did confirm some action figures. Uh, we're getting Kazuda. We're getting Toradoza. We're getting two packs. We get Poe and BB-8. We get Yeager and Bucket. Those are pretty cool. Uh, they come with removable helmets. We're also getting a basic Stormtrooper. We get the golden Stormtrooper that we saw in the extended trailer, Commander Pyre. So we get to find out more about this person. And there's also a mysterious scavenger called Sinera San, who was not in the pilot, so we don't know anything about her. Uh, if you go on IMDb, uh, there's a uh, there's an, a voice actor listed with her, her by the name of Nazine Contractor. Uh, so we don't know exactly when she's going to show up. But we've, we're getting action figures. It's very cool. As I mentioned, I hope we get vehicles. The racers would be so cool to have, even if it's just in Hot Wheels form or something small. So they are definitely working on the uh, merchandising. Let's hope it's out there and available for everybody who wants it. But we've got actual Star Wars Resistance to talk about. Let's see just get right into it. Uh, the way I'm going to review these, I'm just going to... I won't go step by step through the episode, but I'll hit the high points, things I noticed. I made a lot of notes on a rewatch. I watched it with my with my boys. My oldest, he wanted me to make some notes about things he liked. And at, at, Since it is a kid's show, it's aimed ages 6 to 12, I thought it would be cool. For each episode, I'll try to identify the thing he liked most and what appealed to him as a kid. So it's not just me as a 40-year-old talking about things I liked and callbacks that I thought were neat from things I liked as a kid. But yeah, it's this show is for the kids, so I'm going to bring his perspective into it as best I can. He liked it, I liked it. Even my baby liked the visuals. They both enjoyed watching BB-8, which there's a reason they have him on the series, because he appeals to this generation so well. But that will be my basic way of reviewing. And again, I've seen the first three episodes, but I'm only reviewing The Recruit. It's full spoilers, so I assume you've seen this one. I will not reference the next two, with one exception. I don't want to spoil what's coming. And beyond that, I don't imagine I'll have advanced viewings of this. So it's just about this episode, and I'll make some speculation because of the over, um, the overarching spy uh, who's in the first order deal with this season. Well, let's get let's get into it. The opening to the series and the pilot episode was just amazing. It's about the New Republic and the First Order. The first thing we see is are the New Republic X-wing fighters, the T-85s. Uh, 
The ones in the resistance are the T-70s, so they're a little bit older model that Poe and Black Squadron fly. Now this is kind of fleshed out. Um, instead of doing Rebels Recon, uh, which was the show that Andy Gutierrez did after each episode of Rebels, uh, they chose to do one called Resistance Rewind, which so far they did one on Kaz, they did one on Tora, and it's just a chance to talk about the characters, where they got the ideas. They had uh, each voice talent on there, Christopher Sean and Myrna Velasco, talking about their characters. Those were neat. wasn't as in-depth as Rebels Recon. But I got more out of watching Bucket's List in reference to the droid. Uh, it just gave more factoids about the episode. And some of the stuff I'm mentioning here, like the T-85s and the T-70s, were mentioned on Bucket's List. So those are, they're both very short. Those would be a, uh, a useful watch uh, the day after the episode airs. And based on how I'm recording these in the middle of the week, I'll be able to refer to those when I'm doing my reviews. But we see the New Republic fighters going up against Major Von Reg and his red TIE fighter, uh, which, as we saw, that his TIE fighter can go to hyperspace. Again, mentioned on Bucket's list. That's a big deal because... You may not know this, but the TIE Fighters in the Empire era did not have hyperspace capabilities, typically. And uh, the Special Forces TIE Fighters, like the one that Poe and Finn stole in The Force Awakens, uh, it has hyperspace, and Von Regs does as well. So it just shows the technological advances that the First Order made to go above and beyond the Empire. So, I just loved the opening so much because it did a better job explaining the state of the galaxy at that point in time than The Force Awakens did. As much as I love The Force Awakens, I thought the crawl didn't do a good enough job explaining, okay, yes, the Republic's here, the First Order is a threat, and then you have the Resistance as well, which is led by General Organa. But you weren't sure, like, how it was all structured. And I mentioned on a previous episode, they took out an entire deleted scene in The Force Awakens where Leia has Corsella uh, go back to the Republic Senate and explain that the First Order threat is even more imminent. To And it demonstrated that there was a separation between the Republic and the Resistance. Whereas the Crawl gave the impression that the resistance was like the militant arm, even though they had their own fleet. Almost like the it, the resistance was a vanguard for the Republic. Whereas in reality, and it's referred to in the episode, they're kind of extremists and they're on their own. They're doing their own thing because they're taking this threat more seriously with the First Order than the Republic is. But we're explained that in this episode, and it's great. Poe tells Kaz, okay, yeah, you're New Republic Navy, and you know, you're defending against threats like uh, the First Order TIE fighter you just fought, but here's, here's what's really happening. They are amassing their forces. They have a base. They are building up to an invasion, and they're going to attack the New Republic. It's made so clear at the beginning of this episode. I wish, in some ways, 
the beginning of the recruit was the beginning of the Force Awakens. I know they wanted to jump right into the action with the First Order landing on Jakku, but they could have had a similar dogfight between the New Republic and the First Order. A, so we could have seen those ships. But B, to establish the New Republic doesn't really know what's coming, but the Resistance does. I also regret that I didn't mention a book in any previous episode. I've done a book review. I've had an entire episode on speculating about what we would see in on the series, uh, like returning characters and such, and I referenced a lot of materials that have come out in the last few years. The one I failed to mention was Before the Awakening by Greg Rucka. It came out shortly after The Force Awakens re- was released in theaters, and it was a collection, uh, the collection of three stories that detailed where Poe, Ray, and Finn were in their lives shortly before The Force Awakens. Ray, her arc, you know, takes place on Jakku, but the great thing about her story is that it uh, it shows you why she was already a good pilot, even though the implication was she had been stuck on Jakku for years. Uh, Finn, it looks at uh, the team he was on under Captain Phasma, and it also establishes a relationship between him and the um, stormtrooper he fought on Takodana when he drew his lightsaber. Those are both great stories, but Poe's deals with the New Republic. He was a New Republic uh, naval pilot, and after a mission was recruited by Leia, and that's where he brought uh, Kare and Eloasti into the Repu- uh, to the Resistance with him. They were on his squadron in the New Republic, and they came over and completed a mission. And that's when they fully rejoined the Resistance. That ta- that took place shortly before the Poe comic. And then they formed Black Squadron. And as I mentioned last episode, once we got to issue 25 of the Poe comic, that's when Resistance begins, and that's where Poe is in, in league with these New Republic um, pilots led by Kaz, who help him get that intel about the First Order and their imminent attack. So if you get a chance, before you get too deep into Resistance, uh, read Before the Awakening. It's still avail- it's available online. You can go to Barnes & Noble or Books A Million and pick it up. It's one of those short uh, readers. Uh, they did a series with like the red and black covers, so it's inexpensive, a quick read, and it would give you more background for the already great opening they did for the New Republic. And the First Order just gives you such a great sense of where the galaxy is right then. I could go on and on about the beginning of that, but I won't, because there's other stuff to talk about. So we get to see Kaz in action on his X-Wing. It's good to see like where he was in his life at that point. When the series was first announced, and when we got some of the initial info, it almost sounded like he was recruited from out of nowhere to be a spy for the resistance. But now we find out, no, he's grown up in the New Republic because of his father, and uh, 
he went through the academy. He's uh, in the Navy as a pilot. And you can see here, I mean, he, he's a natural leader, leading his squadron, being very firm with his commands, sending them on their way. But at the same time, he has that sense of awe because as soon as Poe shows up, I mean, he's he's fanboy almost. Watching Poe in action and then later on when we've seen his interactions with Leia. So almost immediately, and Christopher Sean did a great job vocally demonstrating this. Like, Kaz has the confidence to handle some situations, but there's others where he just stands back with his eyes wide and his jaw open, knowing yeah, he, he's not comfortable in this situation and there's something bigger than what he knows. And then, of course, he looks in awe at a blockade runner. So cool, we get to see that in a sequel-era show. Um, it's not the 10 of E4. You know, for, it'd be neat if it was, but if you think about it, it was captured by a Star Destroyer and was either scrapped or blew up with the first Death Star. But Poe did mention that particular blockade runner was at the Battle of Scarif and at the Battle of Jakku. So it saw a lot of action. It's, it's great to see that familiar sight. And for these new sequel era characters like Poe and Kaz to be walking around those white hallways that we know so well that we saw Leia walk through and the droids and Obi-Wan and Yoda and Bell. And we get to see Eloasti. Uh, who is one of Poe's wingmates. So, already I can chalk one name off the list of the people I mentioned back in episode two of who we might see on the show. Ello's already been on it. Hopefully there will be more, but it just shows that, yeah, Poe's got Black Squadron together, and they're, they're, they're tight. And we also, I like that we got a reference to the refresher, which is, at least the TV version of the bathroom. It, it makes sense to call it that. I've noticed in... It hasn't really been adapted in the novels, per se. They say bathroom. But um, Wedge used the refresher on Rebels, and Kaz did here. It, it's a nice continuity for the, for the animated shows. I'm sure Dave Filoni had something to do with that. So, Poe recruits... Kaz for the mission, and then Poe has to talk to his father, who's a New Republic senator, uh, Hamato Ziono. And the interesting thing about his father, they scrambled the signals, and it made sense, uh, because of how secretive the Resistance is trying to be about hiding their locations. You know, Poe didn't want Kaz to give away where they are. So we get this scrambled hologram makes sense from their perspective, but I wonder also if they did that so that we don't get to see what his dad looks like. Will that be important later on? I speculated last episode, because he's a New Republic Senator, your first thought is he perishes on Hosnian Prime when Starkiller Base attacks it. And, and that would be a tough enough episode to deal with where we have to see Kaz deal with the loss of a loved one, even if they were estranged, 
or just have a difficult relationship. But I really do wonder, what if his father is somehow in league with the First Order? Could he be a collaborator? And the reason he's so opposed to Kaz even associating with the Resistance, and he calls them extremists, is because he knows they're a threat to finding out what he's doing. Will this play play out later? I don't know. That's total speculation on my part, but it seems significant that they would hire the voice actor to play his father, but they would not show what he looks like. Will that be important later? Because I can see to avoid the dealing with death type episode, dealing with betrayal and having conflict with your family. Total speculation, we'll see. I'll go ahead and mention how great the music was. Michael Tavara did a great job, I thought. The music is just nice and subtle most of the way through. It's in the background. There's added music when they're at Aunt Z's Tavern. And you get some nice... A um, little more whimsical music at the uh, bazaar or at the marketplace. But especially at the beginning of the episode, he, he put in those familiar themes, like when Poe shows up, you get the main Star Wars theme, and Leia's theme is in there. He blended those very well. And they just made the rest of the episode nice and pleasing, I guess you could say. But skipping ahead, the music he did for the sky race between Kaz and Tora was so good. It built up when they were getting ready to launch and just stayed stayed solid after that. So I really like the music in this first episode. I see it getting even better as he gets more comfortable with the material. So we're on the Colossus. We have made it to the planet Castellon. And if you haven't read it, uh, SlashFilm.com I think Brian Young was the author uh, had a report about ILM's Bill um, Bill George came back to work on Resistance. He was like a model maker for Return of the Jedi. And as I mentioned in the first episode, Return of the Jedi was a big deal for me, partially because it was the first time I saw how the sausage was made, as Kevin Smith once said. I saw, like, oh, ILM... You know, what they are, Industrial Light and Magic, they're the ones who make these models and shoot miniatures and all that, and he did the Death Star and these other vehicles and just did meticulous model work to make it look so good on screen. And he's back. They actually brought him in to do models of the Fireball and of the Colossus. And it just took me back to what I loved about the movie Magic of Star Wars, that he did it for a cartoon. And the Colossus... As we see more and more of it, it's just going to be an amazing structure. It's big enough to where there's things we get to see in each episode that we don't have to revisit. And, you know, we'll get, oh, we've, you know, they could be 10 episodes in, and we'll be like, oh, we've never been to this area because it's so big. But there's still going to be familiar places. Like, imagine we'll, we'll be at the tavern a lot, we'll be at. Uh, acquisitions a lot. So there'll be familiar locations on the Colossus, but there'll be new new locations all the time just because of how detailed it is. 
so as soon as they land, uh, we are, are introduced to Niku, and I, I, Niku, he's a he's a good character, um, and I thought that Josh Brenner did a great job with the, the voice and the delivery. Uh, Niku, I mean, he, he's very childlike in some cases. Um, you know, if you look at his helmet, there's been speculation. Maybe he has implants, which is why he acts like he does. Or maybe he had been a racer in the past. Um, Jonah Marie Macias on CultureS.com did an, uh, just did an article speculating on that as well. Uh, could he have been a former racer, and maybe that's his old helmet, and due to an accident, yeah, that's how he acts. Or, uh, I mean, we if we haven't really seen uh, Nikto characters before, maybe that's just the way that species is. Um, I, on this first episode, and this is the only time I'll mention the other two episodes, my concern coming away from the, this episode was that I hope it's not a bunch of Niku misunderstands what Kaz said or did, and it leads to the problem of the episode, or hijinks ensue, that sort of thing, because of the whole greatest pilot in the galaxy misunderstanding. I, I was afraid of, I, mean, I hope that doesn't become tiresome, where, oh, Niku misunderstood, we're in trouble again. But I will say that that doesn't happen in the, in the next two episodes. He's actually more helpful, I guess you could say. So I'm not too worried about that, but it was an initial concern. I do like when he takes things literally and doesn't ex understand um, expressions. Like when Cass said, I said this and you ran with it. And Niku says, I didn't run anywhere. It reminds me so much of the dry humor that Data had on Star Trek The Next Generation. Like when he, he didn't understand what burning the midnight oil meant. That, that That's fun when it's that sort of humor. I just don't want Niku to become the crutch where, you know, just because he didn't fully comprehend what was said, that's why Kaz gets in trouble or Team Fireball gets in trouble. But he has a good heart, and like I say, uh, Josh Brenner did a great job with the delivery. He's going to be an endearing character, I'm sure. And I, just based on the response on Twitter, I can tell that people love him. I will say, and I'll mention it more later, having a live-action character like Poe on the show, I thought it was he was really well translated, except for one moment. Niku sticks out his hand, because he, he knows Poe from before, so he offers his hand to shake it, and Poe just blows him off. And from what we've seen of Poe in the movies, that's out of character for him. He's, I mean, even with the bad guys, he's a wise ass. You know, the, who talks first? You, you talk first, I talk first? You know, that's, that's I mean, he's, it might, be, might be killed by the First Order, and here he is, wisecracking with Kylo Ren. And then, with, with people he knows, he's very, hey, buddy, buddy. Um, it, to, to use the term, it, sounded like, it was such a dick move to blow off a handshake. Um... 
but that was that was the only time I thought, wow, that's not Poe. But the rest of the time it was. Uh, moving on, we get to Aunt Z's tavern, which I am going to love as a setting on the on the series. So many great characters in there. Aunt Z herself is great. The fact that she doesn't mind a good bar fight as long as it gets her good wagers. Uh, yeah, just so much good stuff. Um, she is voiced by a lady named Tova Feldsha. And that character... I, I think it was on the emergency broadcast when they released that first trailer. I said I hoped that she was that kind of a character, like, oh, it looks like we have a bartender. We do, and she looks like she's just going to be a lot of fun. We also have uh, Balza Gruel, who is uh, the guy who, he got his uh, the dart thrown in his back, and he also sells uh, the gorgs at the marketplace. He, he, he seems like a fun big guy. It kind of reminds me of one of the bullies on The Simpsons. That he will beat you up, but he can be reasoned with. So like when Kaz uh, offers the sponsorship. And I love his t-shirt with the little gorg on it. If they, if, they, if they sold that, I would totally buy one. That was just a fun, whimsical little thing for what looks like a really imposing character. And Greville, uh, the one who bets Kaz for the darts... It'd be nice to have a foil that shows up every few episodes that, oh, I don't like you. I remember what you did. And that species is pretty fun, too, if you remember. Um, there was uh, one of the pod racers was that same species. I don't know if you really noticed, but there is that older guy with the mustache who looks like the janitor on Futurama. But he was, he was just set at the bar the whole time, even during the brawl. And then there was a a scene later was like the next morning and you see just the bustle around the Colossus as they get their work day started and he's waiting for Aunt Z to open the tavern and so he's just waiting there and then he goes in so I'm thinking oh this will be so good if he is the barfly of the series because you have to do that on a show like this um, I did ask uh, Doc Wyatt who is one of the writers uh, he's at Otherland71 on Twitter, by the way. Uh, good guy. I asked him if that character has a name yet, and he said no. But I hope he's kind of a recurring, just background character. He doesn't even have to have a line. But he's like Norm on Cheers, and then Morn on Deep Space Nine, who is a parody of Norm. Or Barney on The Simpsons. Just have a barfly who's always there. It, yeah. I just thought that was a neat little touch. So, yeah, the tavern's just going to be a great setting for all these characters. I am going on. Uh, this is a, It's an hour-long episode, so this is going to be... Uh, it was an hour-long episode of the show, so this is going to be one of the longer review episodes I do. I'll try to... In the future, I'll try to keep it 30 minutes or less for a 22-minute cartoon. But just a lot to get into because it's our first exposure to these characters. Uh, there's a lot of references to Yeager's past with Poe. 
So keep in mind, Yeager was a Republic pilot, as we found out from the press releases and such. So he fought in the, like alongside Han and Leia, that age. Poe was, you know, his parents fought in the rebellion. That was shown in Shattered Empire, Kes Dameron and Shara Bay. So Poe was six or so during the Battle of Endor. Um, he was not conceived on Endor, as some people speculated <laughs> in Shattered Empire. Uh, he was already born at that point. So Yeager's way older than Poe, but I imagine that Yeager probably knew his parents from having been in the Rebellion, so... Anyway, they've known each other for a long time. You can just tell from this episode, though, that Yeager, he does not want to go back to fighting. Makes you wonder if he's the First Order collaborator, but then why would he agree to take on somebody who might root him out? I don't know. Um, all I know is that I like Yeager a lot. Um, I've said before, I, I love Scott Lawrence as an actor. Uh, he does such a great delivery as Yeager. There's a lot to him. We find out some more in the next two episodes, so I don't want to say anything yet. Um, but you can just tell he's got a lot of apprehension, and that look he gives at Doza Tower later, there's just a lot going on. I'll speculate in a couple of episodes after you all have seen uh, episodes two and three. Uh, one thing about the show that yeah, when you see the uh, when we saw the trailers and got the initial information it seemed like there was just a bunch of like full force racing going on all the time on the Colossus and there's a lot of racing but the fact it's not always six different racers going at the same time With by the end of the episode we get a one on one race between Kaz and Tora. So that's neat that it's not just full force racing all the time, that you'll get these little individual matchups, and it is a potential there to add some nice variety to the kind of racing we see on the show. Um, Doza Tower is interesting because, you know, we find out that's where the aces reside and where they get this better food and uh, comfortable living and, and as we see you'll notice also on the, the credits Team Fireball is the main cast those are the people we're going to see the most often and the, the aces are literally like in an ivory tower almost and then think about it from, from Kaz's perspective watching that first race, they're just up there on the TV screen. The aces are up there, and Team Fireball's down in the pits, down in the garage. And that's who we're with. And it looks like that's how it's going to be for the series. Um, a little disappointing because I thought, you know, we'd get even more of Tora and Hype and uh, the other racers. But it's interesting to see that perspective, that they are something that is to be attained on the Colossus. Um, I don't want to say godlike, but you know, they do have 
Well, it's, it's like any star athlete, like we have with American football and basketball. I mean, they're these larger-than-life people, and we're down here with our main character and his crew trying to get to that point. That is something I did not expect out of the series. I thought it'd be, okay, we've got Team Fireball here, and then we see a lot of the aces over here, and there's a lot of interaction, but that hasn't happened yet. So it's, it's interesting to see how they're doing that. Um, not per se disappointed in it, just not what I expected, but it, it it's also a nice little commentary on how it is with competition and how we view competitors. At least in America, and I would imagine it's the same all over the country, especially with soccer. And also that scene when they announced that Kaz is going to be racing next, and the camera zooms in on him, and Yeager and BB-8 just like, scram. They get out of camera view, and Yeager does that, cover the uh, with his hand so he can't tell who he is, and BB-8 makes himself uh, absent. That's such a nice little, little touch. I... I, will, I will almost say it's like Futurama humor, especially when Kaz gets to pick his competitor, and he's like, and he sees Tora on the screen, he's like, number five, number five. Oh, was that bad? Um, it, it, I just thought so much of Fry on Futurama at that moment. Uh, it was just that great bit of humor from all the characters. I will go back and say, um, if, if you notice the the... Part one, part two, cut, is when Poe leaves. So, technically, Oscar Isaac was only in the first episode. And um, Brian Larson on Twitter, at Lane Winfrey, made the point, you know, some actors could really mail it in when they're doing a voiceover for a cartoon or something like this. Oscar Isaac really brought it. And he did a good job, with the exception of that one thing I mentioned about the handshake. That's Poe from the movies in a cartoon form. And Oscar Isaac brought the same performance. So kudos to him for doing that. Um, yeah, he could have really been like, all right, I'll do it, um, just so everything matches. But no, he, he brought he brought good emotion to that, depending on which character he, he was interacting with. So So kudos to Oscar on that. Alright, so, as I say, Team Fireball is the focus of the show. So, now we get introduced to Tam. Uh, Susan McGrath did a great job. It was that scene we saw before where uh, she finds out the Kaz has been brought on the team, so she's not too cool about that, especially when she wants to be the pilot, um, which is in her past. Uh, we also see Bucket, who is an R1 model, and we find out is was over 100 years old when Yeager bought him. So that's really cool to see an, an ancient, in some ways, um, droid. But we don't get as much of him. Uh, Tam, I mean, you, you see her desire to be better and um, some competitiveness in her, but, you know, she cheers on Kaz at the, at the race at the end. So she, she's for him as well. There's been some speculation on Twitter 
she could be... I could see her being the First Order spy. Especially because it's almost like the dynamic they had on Smallville, where not all of Clark's friends knew that he had powers, but some did. Yeager and Niku know that Kaz is a spy. Tam and Bucket don't. So, as I said, with Yeager, it wouldn't make sense for him to be the spy and allow us, or to be the First Order collaborator and to allow a spy into the, his circle. Tam doesn't know that. And so she may be um, more naive about it while at the same time plotting. I'm not saying she will be, but she's a, definitely a candidate. Um, we also get to see Tora at this point. She shows up. Uh, Myrna Velasco did a great job with how playful and friendly she is, but also cocky. Um, I hope we get to see a lot more of her. As I said, we only got brief hints of the racers, but Tora most prominently. That one scene where she introduces herself, and it, you know, even at the end when she's glad that he didn't die. Um, it's just that it's a nice, young, quirky performance where she she knows she's good, but you know she, she also is a good person too. She wants to blend in. Uh, moving on, uh, we get to meet Flix and Orca. I love them. Bobby Moynihan and Jim Rash do a great job with these characters. I hope they show up a lot. My son got a kick out of the son of a Slimo insult. Uh, he also, he was, I didn't really plan on mentioning it, but he said, right, right down, it's, it's one of those droids from the pod race that, that works for them. So he liked having the pit droids around. And they're fun little droids anyway, so and it makes sense that something like that would help in a acquisitions department for ships. Um, the one alien who's you see multiple times using the floor buffer, I I hope he's a recurring background character like uh, the old dude in the bar, because that he, he he's just a good design. Um, if one person pointed out, he looks like a pumpkin, but you know it's his hat and his goggles on his big furry head, but. It almost seems futile in some ways. He's trying his best to clean with that floor buffer, but it's not always going to work. Uh, a place as grungy as the Colossus. Another great thing about the acquisitions scene is, and in the garage, is all the techno jargon they use. That's something we haven't seen a lot of in Star Wars. I mean, they talk about the hydro spanners, and like when Rey is having, trying to identify which um, tool she needs from Finn. Um, but Yeager runs through the list of all the stuff he needs and Flix and Orca are finding it a lot of different parts and tools they need that was neat that, that's in future episodes too I'll leave it at that uh, the marketplace is also one of my favorite venues I'm liking the tavern even more, but um, the marketplace just seems like a great place. Um, 
you know, you get even more diversity with the aliens, and, and there's going to be reason to go there a lot, like, in this episode, they need a Gorg. Um, which is, as we found out, I think it was, this was also on Bucket's list, a Gorg was the same thing that Jar Jar tried to eat that got him into trouble in the Mos Espa marketplace uh, when he got into the fight with uh, Sebulba. Um, that that's yeah. Market marketplace, just nice place. I hope they visit it a lot for different reasons. And I will say, that as far as the uh, the whole the whole show's beautiful. Uh, great use of color. I mentioned that before, just watching the trailer. But the, one thing they did really great in this two-parter is demonstrating time of day. Like when they first arrive on the Colossus, it's middle of the day. It's just you know blue skies, blue water. Colossus is very lit up. Later in the episode, it's around dusk, so you get those orange hues from the sky, and everything's kind of shadowy uh, in the garage. And then we have that scene with Kaz uh, looking out on the ocean with BB-8, and it's, and it's nighttime, and all the blues, uh, the dark blues come in, and the moonlight. I think George Lucas said he always wanted to have like either a sunrise or a sunset in his movies to help convey uh, the movement of time. But just by showing different times of day on the Colossus, it was just a great way to show just the depth of animation they can do with this. Just kudos to them for a beautiful look. I'm almost done uh, with my notes. Um, the 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 sky race between Kaz and Doza, Tora Doza was just really well done. Like I said, the music was great, um, the animation. I did like how there were elements of the pod race, like Greg Proops. So glad they brought him back to be the announcer. But also just the sounds of the engines and the countdown. Uh, Klaxon is uh, they got the go sign. All that brought back memories of the pod race. Okay, so let's move on to my son's favorite part of the episode. He had me write down, Kaz is racing. He liked watching Kaz race. He also liked watching Kaz crash. <laughs> he thought, <laughs> I had to explain to him, because he saw Kaz hit the final ring, he's like, well, because he crashed into it, does that mean he won? It's like, no, Tora went through it first, so she won. <laughs> but he, he loved the race, so... Um, hoping we get more of Kaz racing. And you got to think that's going to happen as he becomes, you know, they get better at working on the fireball or other ships, and Kaz becomes a little more accomplished with that. So big thumbs up from my five-year-old on the racing. And the last thing we get is Von Reg arriving at Starkiller Base. Again, an establishing shot like that would have been so great in The Force Awakens to fly up to and reveal what the First Order actually has out there. Which, um, it was a little confusion. I hope they explain it later. In some of the literature, we're led to believe that, well, they, they built up the First Order in the Unknown Regions, which is different from Wild Space. But 
Poe mentions that the base is in wild space. It may just be that since Starkiller Base is mobile, that's where they were currently. Hopefully that's explained, but just to end on such an imposing sight of the fully completed Starkiller Base and more, more than one Star Destroyer sets the tone for how serious this threat is. So that that's the recruit. That's the first episode of Star Wars Resistance. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was just a great way to establish the state of the galaxy at the time, the characters we're going to follow, what the stakes are. Um, Brandon Allman wrote uh, this episode uh, off the story from Dave Filoni. Just really well done establishing these these characters. The next two episodes are great. I will get to them next week and the week after. But I'll wrap it up. Um, I've gone on longer than I thought, but so much good stuff to say about this. Um, I can be found on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Radio Dakar, R-A-D-I-O-D-Q-A-R. Let me know what you thought of it. Um, did you like it? What, what, could it be, what could be done better? Who do you think is the spy? I'd be interested to see what you think. But I will be back next week. We'll review episode two, Triple Dark. I will say this. I love that episode. I hope you enjoy it when you get to see it. Until then, may the Force be with you.